Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome again today to another edition of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, where we like to talk all things sports, comedy, books, church world, the list goes on and on. And we like to do that talking leadership, life lessons, uh, things learned that way. And uh, yeah, today we're, I'm excited. We're uh, having Patrick Miller on here. Uh, he's a pastor. Um, he's got a podcast. I always love talking to people who have a podcast and kind of neat how we got connected. I'd gotten a couple email promo pieces about his book that he co-wrote called Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. And it's been out a little bit. And uh, I spent a lot of time at a, at a local coffee shop. And one of my guys was in there one day and he said, hey, look what our locker room, which in my world with a gathering is small groups connecting men to men and men to God. And his group had out of nowhere decided to do the book. And I'll be honest, I had a little bit of an ego thing. I thought, shouldn't I have been the one telling them about the book? Like, how do they know about it? Not hearing it from me. And uh, so they've been excited. They've kind of jumped in or I think two or three weeks in maybe to the book. And uh, I got to say right out of the gate, Patrick, one of the things I love, you were gracious and sent me a copy of the book that was overnighted. And I opened it up, and as I opened it up from the envelope, I see this thing fall out, and I thought, that looks like a gift card. That's a <laughs> gift card to Starbucks. And you must, through your team, send that out to people, and it says on the gift card, go take a friend out for a cup of coffee, then maybe you don't agree on something. Talk about that. That is super cool. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we actually did that for our whole church. We we called our whole church. We we gave out gift cards to a local coffee shop, you know, kind of did the support local business thing, but we said, "Hey, we want you to find someone, maybe someone you don't go to church with that you disagree with, or maybe it's just different than you. Maybe they're from a different generation than you. Maybe they're from a different ethnic background than you, but just someone who sees the world differently." Because what I've discovered is that where we stand on a lot of issues depends a lot on where we sit. Where you sit is where you grew up, the kind of family you had, the kind of place you live, the kind of ideas that you trafficked in. And it's amazing when you sit across the table from someone who sits in a different place, they have a way of, even if they don't change your mind on an issue, they have a way of helping you understand why someone might believe what they believe. Again, even if it's the opposite of what you believe, and that's really humanizing. And when I look at the example of Jesus, he did this countless times over and over again. I love the story of him with the woman at the well. You know, she's a Samaritan, she's not a Jew, and she's coming out in the middle of the day by herself. And he doesn't castigate her. He doesn't attack her. He just starts asking her questions. He understands where she came from. And that ultimately leads her to the place that she's actually the first person in the gospel of John to announce the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, because she gets something from Jesus in return. And so that's why we love challenging people to just build a relationship, build a bridge with someone who doesn't see the world differently than you. You might learn something that you didn't know, and you might guide them to the truth, which is, of course, Jesus. You know, it's interesting about what you just said there. I'm reminded of uh, a radio station years ago was given a testimony. They were talking to a woman who was uh, really struggling in her marriage. And she talked about the way uh, that she really had some victory was not seeing her husband where he is, but seeing him on the other side of God's finished work 
in his life. And as you were talking, mm -hmm. I was reminded of that story, just thinking like, that's a lot of what I think it is for us to sit with someone, drink a cup of coffee, do whatever, get on common ground where we can, but not see them where they are, where we disagree with them, where we have an issue, whatever. But what's that look like on the other side of God's finished work? Cause Hey, guess what? They need to look at me that way. Cause that's where I am too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, that you kind of just made the point. It's amazing to me when I give to someone else, what I would like to receive in return, they often offer it, you know? Mm. So when you're having that Thanksgiving or Christmas meal with a family member who sees politics or whatever issue totally differently than you, of course, we're just tempted to get into an argument about it, to fight with them, to tell them all the reasons they're wrong. But what I found is if I actually take it as a learning opportunity, because again, they probably know something I don't know. And I ask them questions about why they believe what they believe, how they came to the conclusions that they have, they'll often give me that same gift in return where I'm able to express what I believe and what I believe it. And we both walk out more rounded people in the end. You know, I'm reminded of, as you said that John Maxwell, I think it's John Maxwell gets credit for this quote. And he says something like the arrogant person thinks they can't learn anything from anybody. The ignorant person thinks they can learn everything from somebody. The teachable person knows they can learn something from everyone. Yeah, and it just kind of, yeah. you, you kind of have that posture. I can tell, about you, that you're leading in it, you're walking in it, and you're trying to teach other people how to do the same thing. Well, I think it's also just a good leadership principle. Someone once said that interesting people are interested people. And everybody I know wants to be interesting. You know, you want to be charming, you want to be charismatic, you want to be engaging. But unless you've been gifted with a special kind of personality that just somehow does that automatically, it can be hard to be that kind of person. And, and I found anyone can do it if they're just interested. If you'll just ask someone questions, if you'll just get to know them, they'll walk away. And even if you never said anything about yourself, they'll say, wow, that was a really interesting guy. That was a really interesting conversation. Why? Because people love to talk about themselves. And maybe that's not always a good thing. But I, I think when you're sitting across the table from someone and you say you are made in the image of God, there's something unique and there's there's some dignity that you have that I want to understand and celebrate and be a part of. Of course, they want to be around you more. Of course, you're going to be a more interesting person to them. You know, it's interesting. You can't, I think we can't pray enough about becoming more curious, like increasing our curiosity mm. capacity because yeah, the more you, I mean, most people I know, and, and we can talk more about this in a little bit because you podcast, most people I know get into podcasting or some sort of platform like that because they're curious about people and they're interested and want to know more about people and their story or whatever. So it lends itself, you know, to that. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look at the most popular podcast in the world right now, and it's the Joe Rogan experience. And whatever you think about Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan is one of the most curious people I've ever seen. Mm. And I think that's what makes him a spectacular interviewer. I mean, he's always talking to people who disagree with him, who he doesn't see eye to eye with, but he's interested in understanding mm. why. Why do you hold the perspective you have? And in that sense, I think he's a great example for all of us. We sure. should be interested. We should be curious. We should ask questions. I'm super late to the party with The Chosen, but as I've been watching The Chosen last couple months i've really been intrigued and it's been highlighted to me how much jesus definitely did his ministry by asking a lot of questions and he yeah, yeah. clearly was i mean you see him in the crowds of people and you're like wow he he was really focused on whoever it was a one the one whoever it was in questions as we know just kept coming out but i'm like man it, it's highlighted in a way that just reading it on a page maybe has not hit me before have you checked out the chosen yeah. at all no, yeah, we, we actually had the executive producer of The Chosen on our podcast just a few weeks ago. But I agree with you. I love their depiction of Jesus, that he is so curious. And it, and it fits what you see in the Gospels. He asks more questions than he ever answers. 
And I mean, who, who could that be true? Of? That's certainly not true of me. I answer questions that no one's even asking. <laughs> you know, I, I think I've got an opinion on everything and everybody needs to hear it. But Jesus, who was actually able to see inside of people's hearts. So, I mean, really, he didn't have to ask the question. He could have found the answer on his yeah. own. And yet he still asks the question. He still engages in the relationship. And that's one thing I love about their depiction of Jesus. He's he's curious. He's interested. And again, that's part of what makes him so interesting. Yeah. Somebody said to me a couple of years ago, they, they go, you know, the, the most important ministry Jesus had was the questions he asked. And I thought, whoa, I think they're right. So what's yeah. your take on that, Patrick? Tell me about what you think about The Chosen. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed The Chosen. I, I, I can understand why there might be some people who have issues. You know, I, I think there's so much bad Christian art out there. So part of me was just relieved to see a, a piece of art done by Christians that was done artfully. Now, all the actors aren't Christians. Everybody on set isn't Christians. But, you know, the, the guy directing it is a Christian. And he's really put his heart into writing a, a piece, a, a movie, or I guess a TV show that is artful and that's really well done. And I think as a result, what it's done for a lot of people is it's humanized yeah. Jesus and it's really humanized the disciples. One of the challenges we kind of have as modern people is we're so used to reading uh, more psychological literature. Like if we pick up a book, we get to hear what's happening inside of people's heads. Their 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 physical details are described in detail. And then you read the Bible and it's really sparse. You know, we, we don't get to hear what's happening in Matthew's head or John's head or Peter's head. We don't get to uh, descriptions really of what they looked like. Or And, and so I think what, the, what it has done is it's helped people to see the humanity of Jesus yeah. because he was God, but he was also human. And I think attaching or understanding the humanity of Jesus helps us to understand because that kind of popular uh, marketing thing out there right now, you know, he, he gets us or, and, yeah. and I think that's the idea that they, this show really taps into. He, he gets us because he was actually like us. He really was a human. And I think that's easily lost on modern people. Yeah. 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 I remember when I, when I used to do young life for years, I, I would talk about, you know, the, the concept and the idea that Jesus was a hundred percent God as if he was not man. And he was a hundred percent man as if he was not God. And I agree. I think that human side of Jesus has just been depicted so, so well. So well, let's move on. Let's jump into your testimony. So Patrick, give us kind of your three minute, you know, coming to Jesus, being drawn to him. You know, when you came to Jesus, what was like going on? What was the thing you were wrestling with? And what does that look like? Yeah, you know, I became a Christian when I was 19. I, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I didn't grow up around a lot of Christian thoughts, Christian ideas. But when I went off to college, I, I really had to wrestle with the purpose and the meaning of life. And I think for a lot of guys my age, the way that happened was through a relationship. <laughs> in particular, there was a girl and I, I loved this girl. I thought she was everything. And she cheated on me with my best friend and dumped me uh, like it was nothing. And that really kind of wrecked and tormented 19-year-old version of me. And in the midst of that, I just started reflecting on what, what, why am I here? Why does my life matter? I mean, if you look at the earth, it's just a pale blue dot in a giant universe. And one day it'll be swallowed up in the slow heat death of the sun. So what we do doesn't really matter. No one 100 years from now is going to remember me, whether I wrote a book or didn't write a book or whatever else, I will be forgotten. I'm not going to be remembered. And as I thought about that reality, it, it made me realize that, gosh, if life is miserable, it, it's not worth living, right? <laughs> it is simply not worth living a life out if it's all just going to get evaporated in the sun one day and none of it matters. And in the midst of that, I was just blessed with Christian friends, Christian men who came around me and they saw that internal torment that I was going through mm -hmm. and they reached out and they said, Hey, I don't think you've thought this through because if there is a God, then there might really be a meaning and a purpose to your life that outlasts this life. 
that outlasts the moment that you die. And so that set me on a seven-month trajectory of learning about Jesus and reading the Bible and exploring what did it mean to follow him and walk in his ways. And I, actually, Easter of my freshman year of college, I, I came to faith. I was doing a little Stations of the Cross thing at a church and walking through Jesus's journey uh, up to the cross and his crucifixion. And I realized this is the purpose of my life. God loved me enough to die for me, and now he's called me to lay down my life for others. Wow. It's funny as you started telling that story and you said uh you said there was a person nobody saw it coming it'd be a, a young lady that you were digging on that that's never a part of a testimony is it <laughs> i'm always shocked i talked to so many i mean men and women who that, that's a key part of their story there was someone that they loved that that hurt them and in the midst of the hurt god met them and, and i mean no. isn't it just the way god is Amen. i remember reading this story of a couple they were trying to plant a tree in their front yard and uh, every time a storm came through it knocked the tree over and so dad came along and said hey you guys don't know how to plant trees you got to put some stakes in the ground and tie the tree to the stakes that's the only thing that will hold it up in the wind and if you think about what it's like to be that tree when it was just getting knocked over, just getting knocked over. But when the wind was coming, it could feel those stakes holding it up. Mm. It could feel those stakes holding it in place. And I think that's what happens in suffering in our life so often is if you have Jesus and he's staked into the ground next to you, you might not notice him when things are going well, when mm. you're happy, when everything is all just hunky-dory. But when things get hard, you feel the stake. You feel it holding you in place. And you say, oh my gosh, you were there. And I think that's what happened to me in that moment was I felt the presence of God holding me in place and saying, you aren't alone. This universe isn't purposeless. I am here. Yeah. Wow. It's so cool. I love, I love that analogy. So tell us uh, a little bit more, Patrick, about your kind of fuller ministry background, how you kind of got to where you are, a resume of sorts. And, and then how did you land kind of in a little bit more of a political space with a podcast, a book that clearly, you know, not everybody's just going to drink the Kool-Aid and say, yeah, 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 we agree with that. I mean, you're going into some kind <laughs> of uh, shark infested waters. So tell us about some of that. Well, I've never been afraid of controversy. For better or worse, I have a personality uh, which makes it easy for me to get into debates. Some might say I, I call them lively conversations with other people. <laughs> I don't mind offending others. I don't want to do it because I'm being a jerk, but I don't mind if my ideas offend others. And I've always been that way. I mean, back in high school, I was the editor-in-chief of our newspaper. And I remember I wrote some editorials that made everybody upset and probably wrongfully at the time really delighted in that. And so part of my own journey of sanctification with Jesus has been learning, hey, what's it mean to have a gentle and meek spirit? What's it look like to, uh, like I just said earlier, reach across the table and try Try to understand someone, not just have a debate with someone. Uh, my own ministry experience, I, I actually was, like you just said, I was really involved with Young Life early on in my faith. I was a Young Life leader. And after I graduated from college, went into campus ministry and did that for about seven years. Uh, and towards the end of that, became a pastor. I'm still working in a local church context as a pastor. Now, early on, I was focused primarily on people in their 20s. So young people, we had uh, several hundred young people in small groups. And as I was reflecting on how do you reach young people, how can you be in their lives? I realized that podcast Casting was a huge way to do that. You know, back in the day, pastors could just kind of walk from house to house and check in on people where they were working. And that's just what it was like to be a parish pastor. And I think one way that we can be in the lives of other people as church leaders is doing what you're doing. It's having a podcast so that when someone's driving to work or they're doing a chore, it's like you're right there with them and you're kind of checking in on them in their life and giving them some spiritual food that's going to help nourish them throughout the week. And so that got me into podcasting. We actually do another podcast called 10 Minute Bible Talks. It's mostly uh, just Bible devotions, helping people connect with God, the Bible, and pray. Uh, and in the midst of that, we really began to realize as a church that things were changing around us. I mean, 2016 was a big watershed. Obviously, 2020 was a big watershed. But all of a sudden, as pastors, we began to realize that 
people were asking us different kinds of questions. You know, 10, 15 years ago, someone would want to ask me about, you know, like, do you baptize babies or do you have believers baptism? You know, do, do you believe in predestination or are you all free will? Right? You know, everybody wanted to have theological debates about ideas. But all of a sudden in 2016 and 2020, the question started changing. People wanted to know where we stood on LGBTQ issues. People wanted to know what we thought about George Floyd. People were asking us to weigh in on these kind of political, cultural issues. And at the time, we thought, well, you know, Jesus does actually have some things to say about this. And if we want to walk in his ways, we need to let him disciple us, even in our politics, even in our political outlook. And if the church is silent on these things, it's not that people will live in a vacuum. They just won't have political outlooks. Instead, we'll go get it somewhere else, right? Whether it's Fox News or the New York Times, we will find someone to disciple us in our politics. And I think Jesus wants to be that person. But the church, and I'm saying this is true of our church, I think the church writ large has, in a lot of ways, fail to disciple people in their politics. And so we started our podcast, Truth Over Tribe, where we said, look, we're not coming from the left or the right. We're coming from a kingdom perspective. And we'll talk to people on the left. We'll talk to people on the right. We'll talk to Christians. We'll talk to atheists. We'll talk to literally anyone. What we're trying to do, though, is not just uncover the truth about them, but uncover the truth of how Jesus is calling us to live and what is, I think, by any standard, one of the most polarized, difficult yeah. political moments in American history. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Scott Sauls, I don't know if you're familiar with him, out of yeah. Christ Pres in Nashville, and he's written a number of books, and he's been on the podcast. And one of the things he's referenced, and I, I really like this, basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he'll say, like, if you're frustrating to Democrats, Republicans, or you're frustrating to conservative or liberals both, you're probably right where you should be. Like, that's where Jesus would be. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nobody's like, oh, yeah, we got him. Even though people think that, I mean, I've heard people talk about certain political parties or whatever, and like, yeah, you can't be a believer if you're on the other side. And I'm sure you've heard it, and probably both ways. And I'm curious, how does how does that look? You know, and if you want to expand more on your podcast, please do so, or whether it's with a book or whatever. But based on who you are, I love what you said about you know lively conversations. What is that? How does that make your church, with you as the leader, culture you're creating? What is that? How does that make your church look different? Well, it's a fantastic question. You know, our church is located in the middle of Missouri in a college town. So Missouri is a thoroughly red state. Most people here are Republicans, except for in our city centers, Kansas City, St. Louis, and Columbia, where the university is located. Now, because we're a smaller city, that means that our church has always been a cross-section of politics. We've always had Democrats worshiping here. We've always had Republicans worshiping here. They had to sing songs alongside one another. They had to be in small groups with one another. And for 15 years, that wasn't a problem. They learned to set aside their politics, their political outlooks, and see a human across the table from them and love them. But as the, the temperature of the political discourse in our country began to, to, to rise, we're now all of a sudden, if you voted for Donald Trump, you're a despicable racist. Or if you voted for Hillary Clinton, you're a evil progressive baby killer. When those become our caricatures of the people who are sitting next to us in the pews, you can't have relationship. I mean, relationship almost becomes impossible. And so again, what we thought is, just think about Jesus. I mean, conflict is nothing new in the church. Um, in the early church, it was mostly ethnic conflict between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul said to the Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus, hey, when you worship Jesus, you have to know this, he died to tear down the dividing wall separating you. And the way you proclaim his kingship, his glory, and his goodness to the world is by organizing yourself differently than the world does. They say Jews and Gentiles can't be together. 
But here in Jesus' kingdom, they are together. And that tells the world that it, it's not ultimately in control. That should be true of the church. The world says you can't be friends with someone across a political aisle from you. You can't see eye to eye with them. You can't have a substantive relationship with them. And the best way that we can proclaim and witness to the power and goodness and love of Jesus is by being a community where people who everywhere else would be divided are suddenly united by something greater. And you said, do you think that... How would you guys evaluate you and your other staff or elders? How would you evaluate how you guys are doing in that? Yeah, you know, I mean, not perfect, <laughs> not, not, not a slam dunk, not not a one hundred percent score. You know, what what we've discovered is that the place that we've kind of staked out it inevitably means that we lose people who are already co opted by a political agenda. If you are a progressive first and a follower of Jesus second. Mm -hmm. And everything you do, you read your Bible through a progressive lens, you read Jesus through a progressive lens, you look at reality through a progressive lens, you're probably never going to feel totally at home in our church. Not because we won't welcome you, not because we don't want you here, but because we don't share your your, your, your glasses. We're seeing the world differently. The exact same thing goes on the right. If you're just a, you know far right and anyone who says anything about Trump that I don't like, I can't be around, if that's you, again, if that's your lens for reality, you're going to have a hard time here. And so what honestly happened between 2016 and 2020 is a lot of those people in those extreme categories, which, by the way, are a minority of our population, yep. they're very loud. They're chihuahuas right you know they got a loud yeah but they're small <laughs> and those people over time they found churches that matched their political ideologies you know one group went to the church with the rainbow flag out front the other one went to the church with the american flag out front and they called it a day but for the rest of us i think the beauty has been that that we've been challenged to come not not not, not into the middle politically i'm not some milk toast moderate that's not actually where i stand but but to come into a place of mutual understanding where we get to know one another and see each other's perspectives and then evaluate are, are my political values are they actually in alignment with the kingdom like do i want what jesus wants in the kingdom and have i put them in the order that the kingdom puts them and that's a that's a long journey and so i'd say we're still on the path of that journey. But I think the vast majority of the people at our church would say that they're happy to be in a place where they can't assume that the person sitting down the aisle from them shares all mm. of their political beliefs. That that last sentence is a big statement. That to me speaks volumes to the culture you're creating in the ways I think you're probably winning. So let me ask you this. So you seem to me, Patrick, like you're a pretty self-aware guy. Where would the people at the crossing say, we love Patrick? He's our guy. He's our pastor. He's our shepherd. We're so glad to have him. And where would they say, yeah. like, man, he's forget me leaving, but he's driving me nuts. <laughs> well, I, I, my guess is it might be the exact same thing. I, I think there's a lot of people who wish that we would talk about politics less, right? Who wish that we would uh, skate around these cultural issues, you know? Why do we have to talk about the LGBTQ issue? Why do we have to talk about the trans thing? Why do we have to talk about race? Like, why are these things that are even on our board? I think that's one area where people would say, gosh, I wish you'd just leave because I don't want to have that conversation and it just divides people. But on the flip side, I think there's a whole different subset of people that say, I'm so thankful for this because up until now, I've been discipled in my view on all these cultural issues by things that had nothing to do with Jesus in the Bible. And I, I want my life to be shaped by Jesus in the Bible, but I, it can't if my pastor, if my church leader is just refusing to speak about those issues. So let's go next to the famous quote. I think it's Rupertus Meldinius, if I'm saying it right, said, <laughs> in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Which, by the way, I had to look that quote. It's amazing how many people get credit for that quote, but I finally found enough places that agreed it was him. But what's your thoughts on that famous, famous quote? 
I, I think it's a fantastic quote. And I think it's a quote that Christians should take to heart. Look, there's a long history in the church of people dividing over things that they really had no business dividing over. And then there are some serious things that we've divided over that we probably should have divided over. The, 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 the proof though is in the pudding, right? Because the question is, what are the essentials? What are the non-essentials? And what are the all things? And for different issues, various groups inside the church might put different things in each category. And, and that's where things get really challenging because I think most people would read that and say, yeah, I agree with it. But again, the question becomes what goes where? Mm, that's good. Well, hey, let's transition. I like to have fun and get a little sideways and ask these five kind of goofy questions I call the rapid five. So okay. Patrick, what is your favorite childhood snack or cereal? Mm, corn puffs. The sh- sugar corn. Oh, corn, not sugar corn pops. Corn puffs. Corn pop, are they called corn pops or corn puffs? I can't remember. You know, I don't eat cereal anymore, but there was a little yellow things. You know, they're like little yellow ball things that were sweet and sugary. Uh, was that, that corn pops? I think that's sugar corn pops. Oh, man. See, I don't even know my favorite cereal. Clearly, I, I still it. eat cereal. You know what's funny? I went away from cereal mostly for years. And because I keep asking this question, I'm eating cereal like crazy the last probably two years. <laughs> and yeah, you know, Golden Grams, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I'm like, yeah. if if I'm gaining weight or anything's happening solely based on cereal, I might have to quit doing this podcast. But um, it's because of the Lucky Charms. Well, I, I've not been eating any of that. I actually I said on a previous one that a Smart Start, which is hard to find, it's also very very expensive, is probably my favorite cereal. If price is all the same and it's actually a pretty healthy cereal but um well yeah that that's my other problem with cereals we have kids but my wife buys all of i, I think some of them are organic i don't even know what they are uh but there's there is one that is the uh, i think organic and more expensive version of corn pops it's called leap and lemurs so <laughs> that's what i think of now is leap and lemurs what a title that's just like a traveling know. you know gymnastics show or something like that but what's yeah. what's your patrick what's your favorite book over years, over recent time, whatever that you most like to gift to other people? <laughs> I'm going to end up Jesus juking. I mean, it'd have to be the Bible. There's no book I've given away more than the Bible. That that would be that would be my number one. So, you know, it's funny. Nobody on here has said that yet. Oh, really? They didn't even try to. I mean, and you don't sound like it's cr- to be a jerk by saying it. it's no. just the first thing that comes to mind. Nobody has said it. They've said other things and they haven't played Christianese. And I don't think you are either. You're like, that's the book I've given more to other people. What, what book do you find yourself outside of the Bible most telling people about? Oh, man, that's really hard. I, I'm, I'm a pretty voracious reader, which means I, I end up recommending books I've read recently as opposed to the same book over and over and over again. You know, one of my favorite books I read in the last year is by a guy named Glenn Scrivener. It's called The Air We Breathe. And yeah. he looks at how we think that we live in a post-Christian culture, but he's making the case that actually the very values that we think of as maybe being post-Christian are deeply rooted in Christian history and Christian tradition, things oh, like wow. freedom and equality. And so it's a fantastic book. I, I highly recommend it. Okay, great. That's good to know. So your family's going on vacation. You leave Missouri. Maybe you're heading east my way or something like that and how are your kids i've got a three-year-old and a six-year-old okay so this this is particularly for your six-year-old so you're you're heading out you know you're gonna stop maybe 11 30 if you're like me and gotta beat any kind of lunch rush or whatever but at 11 15 11 20 one of them has to go to the bathroom and you're like if you're like me i am not stopping back to back within a few miles we're doing it all right here so if you see on the exit sign mcdonald's Chick-fil-A, and hopefully you've been out west enough from where you are, In-N-Out Burger. Have you been to In-N-Out Burger? I have been to In-N-Out Burger. All right, so where is the Miller family going? Well, assuming it's not Sunday, Chick-fil-A. Okay. 
Is it hands down Chick Fil A? Is it? Oh, hands down Chick Fil A. It's it's a crowd pleaser. Everybody loves it. And I mean, who doesn't love Chick Fil A? Yeah. I mean, I I, just, I can't imagine picking anything but Chick Fil A. You do get In and Out Burger, uh, or you do get Chick Fil A about as quick as possible. But you know, for most people, I think if people like both those, they would tend to say In and Out Burger a little bit more, only because it's not typically as accessible or whatever. That's true. If we're, if we're in Colorado and in and outs available, maybe I do in and out just for the variety. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had one guy, I don't know if you know, uh, Tom Rayner, who's done a lot of the big church consulting, whatever through church answers and previously at Lifeway, his son, Sam was on here and Sam was really funny. He's, and I knew this about him already. Cause you know, I've gotten to know him a little bit. He is a huge crystal slash white castle fan i think he's actually white castle maybe over crystal and so he's like it's not even a contest because i'm not going to any i'm fine at white castle and i'm like dude you're like the only person i know that would say white castle over chick-fil-a or in and out or even mcdonald's that that matter. I've, I've ate at a white castle once in my life and uh i, I didn't actually eat it I got, I got the sandwich i opened it up and i saw this like weird conglomeration of beef like substance <laughs> yeah. and onion and something cheesy yeah. and it, it looked like it honestly looked like vomit and i thought <laughs> I, I, wh- why is anyone eating this i threw it out the window i didn't actually threw it out the window but i didn't eat it I, <laughs> like, i'm not eating it. i do get a fix for it about every few months or so and something about those onions they they kind of grab your attention I'll, I'll say that my dirty secret is popeyes i love popeyes chicken I don't think that's dirty though. I think people have really gotten into. I'm like my oldest son and my daughter both want to go on this tour where they go try a chicken sandwich at every restaurant, oh, yeah. and people really like the chicken sandwich at Popeyes, and you know they're they're Cajun flavored stuff with the beans and rice and even their fries. I mean, I don't I don't know that that's any uh, you know anything to hide there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been enjoying Popeyes as long as I've been enjoying corn pop slash corn puffs slash leaping lemurs <laughs> or whatever it is. That's right. So if you were on old school TV, not streaming necessarily, you're flipping channels. What's a movie, Patrick, that if you stumbled across it every time you're watching it? Oh, The Matrix. Oh, little Keanu Reeves. Is that- oh, yeah. Who do- I love Keanu Reeves. He's he's the best. See, what's funny about that is I did not get super into The Matrix, but I totally loved Speed. Oh, there you go. Everybody's got their thing. I've watched the Matrix recently, and it's shockingly aged well. It's it's really? still a great movie. I think the other, like Matrix 2 and 3, I think they're all probably terrible movies. I don't know. I haven't watched them recently. And they did like a, a, a new version of the Matrix, which was absolutely awful. But the original Matrix yeah. is it's fantastic. I know people loved it. I uh, it's funny what you say about eight, what ages well. I've I've really struggled at 53 years old. I've not always gotten into some of the obvious movies when I was growing up. Like I didn't get into Die Hard or uh, Hoosiers, which my my youngest son just played the gym where some of that was filmed for a basketball game. And when I watched them, finally, they just they didn't do it for me because they're so old and so <laughs> whatever. But I'll tell you, here's a movie that ages well. Actually, a series is uh, I went to Montana last summer. And on the way out there, I was on one of those flights where you automatically get the movie. And I thought, what the heck, I'll check it out. And had to see the time for the flight and which ones would work. And I watched the first episode or the first one of uh, Beverly Hills Cop. And then on the way back, I watched Beverly Hills Cop 2. It's crazy (laughs) how good those Eddie Murphy movies stand up. Now, 3 was horrendous. One of the worst movies ever. (laughs) But Beverly Hills Cop 1 and 2, I don't know if you saw it back in the day. Go watch it. They stand up very well. All right, I'll, I'll take the challenge. Okay, I'll check in with you later. Make sure you, you see what you thought. Uh, yeah, yeah. Last and most important question of these five, Patrick, who was your first celebrity crush? Oh man, I am not a big celebrity guy, uh, and I've never been. 
Uh, you know, but what my mind goes to would, I, I think it'd have to be uh, Topanga from Boy Meets World. Okay, now I'm trying to think. That was who Fred Savage's brother was in that movie. Is that right? Or in that TV show, right? Oh man, I don't even know any of the actors' names. Was it on like I, I, Nickelodeon I tell or you something? Her name. her name was Topanga in the show, and she was the main character. You know, it's kind of like a bunch of middle schoolers, and yeah. I was younger than middle schooler, but she was the main love interest. So I think I was just copying the main character's desire for her. You know what's funny? I think, I think I actually know who you're talking. Yeah, I don't know that she's really been in much else since then, but uh, I think I remember that like my sister, maybe my sisters or somebody I know liked that show, or maybe maybe it was my heck, was it been my kids? Probably not. Was that movie or that TV show out in like the nineties? Oh yeah, this is uh this is if, if you're if you're a child of the nineties, then you know what I'm talking about, and if you're not, you probably don't. Yeah, I'm a little. You're how old are you? I am 35. Okay, so see, you're a generation younger than me. So, yeah, I was definitely older, but I think I remember seeing, maybe maybe it was Young Life Kids I was hanging out with. We're checking that out. So, okay, okay. That, that says a lot then age-wise because I'm thinking, yeah, if that's, if that's not resonating with me, I must have you on age a little bit. So <laughs> There you go. Well, let's get on to your book. So you have kind of three areas of focus in a book. You talk about how tribalism hurts us, how social media platforms encourage divisiveness now you seem like you did a little bit more work in that versus a lot of us just will willingly say that that's true and then you encourage us how to show generosity kindness crossing tribal lines listening join an exclusive tribe or all things to kind of end on a positive note or whatever unpack the book for us a little bit think about it in light of there's some other books that kind of either full throttle are where your book is or they're kind of toeing a line a little bit there's until unity by francis chan it's speaking more to the church Andy Stanley, as I said, has not in it to win it. Tim Keller's latest book is called Forgive. I mentioned Scott Sauls. He has a book called Gentle Answer. Uh, talk about your book, separate it from others. Why did you come to write it? And then maybe hit on some of those areas. Yeah, well, l- let me lead off by saying all those other books are fantastic. What led us into this particular book was really two things. Number one, there is a tremendous amount of research out there about tribalism and polarization, especially around political topics, but it tends to exist in mostly academic circles. It it hadn't really been translated for just everyday people who are trying to live their lives and are living in the mess of political tribalism. And so we thought, well, gosh, there's a need here. We kind of need to take some of this research, some of these insights and bring it to bear in everyday life. And in the same way, I think the Bible has a tremendous amount to say about tribalism and actually in particular political tribalism. I mean, Jesus was not uh, unfamiliar with political tribalism in his own era. Part of why we focus on politics is just the simple fact that today everything seems to be political. I mean, you can hardly name a dimension of life that someone hasn't politicized somewhere. And the thing that seems to be dividing us more than anything else does seem to be politics. And so if you had to center in on one specific area where the church and individual Americans are most divided. I I can't imagine someone saying anything but politics. And I don't think that would have been the case even 10 or 15 years ago. I think you could have found a number of other things that Americans were divided and heatedly divided over. And so that's part of our concern. I, I think the other thing that separates us is that, again, I love all those books, but where we're at is we're saying, is let me put it this way. I think sometimes there's a tendency to say, let's just stop talking about politics. Let's just keep politics out of the church. And I get that. And if what you mean is partisanship, I'm just going to give it a loud amen, right? I don't want your local Republican senator or House of Representatives person coming in to give the Sunday sermon and a little stump speech. I don't want partisanship inside the church. But, 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 but the gospel is 
political. And this is something that I think just we're, we're lost on this. When we hear the word gospel, it kind of goes into our religion juncture. You know, it's like we put weirds like spirit and spirituality and soul. It all goes into the same juncture as gospel. But in the ancient world, gospel would have been in their political juncture. It would have been a political term. I say that, I mean, you, you can find this all over the place, but one fun example is there's an inscription that was made in 9 BC. So before Jesus was born, but it was about the Caesar who was reigning at the time of Jesus's birth, Augustus Caesar. And this little inscription calls Caesar. It says, first of all, it says, this is the gospel of the birth of Caesar, <laughs> which sounds like the beginning of Mark's gospel. Okay. And so, and it goes on, it says that he was the Lord that he was the savior of Rome, that he brought peace to the world, that he was the son of God. These were all terms and terminology that would have been used to describe the political leader of the Roman world. Gospel, peace, Lord, Savior, all of those things were things that they would have seen as political. So when you have a Jewish rabbi walking around a Roman-occupied Israel announcing an alternative gospel within an alternative king, uh, that it's bringing forth an alternative peace, well, now you know why this guy got crucified. And it's not that confusing. I mean, you can look right above his head on, on, the, on the little thing. It says, this guy says he was king of the Jews. He was crucified because he was a threat to Caesar. He was crucified because he was, a, he was treasonous. And this helps us understand that the gospel at its core is a political message. It's a message about the kingdom or the empire of God coming to earth as it is in heaven. And so that's where maybe our book differs some, is that we say, look, we, we don't need to hate each other. We don't need to fight and, and tear each other's hair out. But on the other side, there is a politic to the gospel. It's not partisan, but there is a political message in the gospel, and we can't be afraid to talk about it. That time has passed. Yeah, really like the way you frame that. You know, anytime the word kingdom's used and used rightly and, and used in a way that talks about authority and power of Jesus, I mean, that's that's not going to be a bad thing. And I love that. And there's obviously a po political side to that. So you talking here too about three areas of things to look at with ourselves: things we know that we know, things that we think we know, things that we know we don't know. And I can tell with you, there's Patrick, there's a, a real teachable spirit. Kind of talk about those three areas and how we maybe slot our thoughts and what we think and, you know, confidence in that, but also humility and so forth. Yeah, there's been a lot of research done around this. The, the, the main piece of research, it's, it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. So anybody can Google this and you can find it. And, and what they did was they, they started with a group of managers and they, they asked the managers to self-evaluate how knowledgeable they were in management and how good they were as managers. And what they found is that managers, they obviously rated themselves very differently. Uh, they then went to the people that they manage and they asked them to rate their managers. How well does this manager uh, understand management and how good of a manager are they in reality? Here's where things get kind of crazy. The managers who gave them the highest rank for, gave themselves the highest ranks for highest levels of managerial knowledge and managerial expertise scored the lowest <laughs> from mm. their employees. They had the lowest scores and the managers who gave themselves the most middling ranks were actually in line with what their employees said. Now they continue to do research on this and this is what they found. When you don't know anything about a subject, you will almost always rate your knowledge of that subject area very low. So let's say you don't know anything about immigration and someone says, Hey, what's your perspective on immigration? You can say, look, I don't know anything about that. I, I don't know what to say about it, but where we rate our knowledge level, the highest is when we're most amateurish in our knowledge. Mm. We, 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 we will self-evaluate. So I read two articles about immigration. Now I'm an immigration expert in my own mind. 
And this is really hard because it's not, this isn't, this isn't an out there problem. This is true of every living human. We will rate our knowledge level at the highest when we're at the most amateurish. Experts, however, they give themselves accurate ratings. Doesn't mean that they always give themselves low rankings, but they will accurately identify because they understand the whole picture. They're like, well, I don't know as much as that guy knows, but I know more than that guy over there yeah. knows. So I kind of rank right here in the knowledge level about mm. immigration. And so that's kind of where this principle of knowing what you know, knowing what you think you know, and knowing what you don't know comes into play. Knowing what you don't know is actually really easy, right? I mean, I mean, you know the things you don't know. The the area that we get really in trouble in is the things I think I know. That's when I read the two articles, and I think I know everything about it. But really, I, I know nothing about it. And 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 of course, the last category is things I know I know, and that's always going to be the smallest category. We're just I mean, humans. We we only have so much time and so much mental energy. There are very few things that you know really really well. It's probably what you do at work. You know, <laughs> if you're in finance, you understand some things about finance that few other people understand. If you're a plumber, you understand some things about plumbing that I promise you I don't understand. But that last category of things I know is very small. And as a result, it means that I should show some level of curiosity about the things I think I know. Man, I, I feel like that, what you just shared there and unpacking that more could be a whole podcast unto itself. That got me interested in the book more just for that standpoint. So how would you encourage your people? You know, if you got a guy or a woman or young person, older person who comes to you and says, help me engage in politics. I mean, obviously, I think you're going to say nobody would really disagree with like we should vote. Like voting is obviously a good thing. You know, praying for our leaders, you know, that's, that's a good thing. I mean, I, Stephen Mansfield, who I like a lot and has been on here, and he came and spoke for me. I mean, he's really good about praying for our leaders, obey our leaders, don't say anything bad about them, which most Americans have clearly jettisoned all three of those things, if not, you know, a couple of them. Oh, yep. How do you encourage people to engage politics? Like if someone came and sat down with you, I mean, I'm sure you're going to want them to hear, hear God's heart and what is God saying to them, but unpack how you would walk them through that. Is it is it more based on cause? Is it more based on issues? Is it them as a leader and where they can or can't do something? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways that you could skin this particular cat. Let me start here. I would just want to start with a conversation with them about what what is politics? Like fundamentally, what are we even talking about here? Because in America, we have a lot of political hobbyists right now. These are people who spend a lot of time on Twitter. They spend a lot of time on the news. They spend a lot of time listening to the radio. And so they're up to date on what's happening in Washington, probably from a partisan perspective, one way or the other. And so their interest in politics is largely just hearing about the horse race in D.C. And so when I say politics, that's what they think of. There's an old story by Charles Dickens called Bleak House. And in it, there's a story of a woman named Miss Jellyby, which is a, a fun name. And Miss Jellyby, she, she, she has all these children in her house and she's neglectful of them. She doesn't care about them. She's unkind to them, but she is deeply concerned for orphans in Africa. And so she's constantly sending letters and money off to Africa to go care for these orphan children while the children who are in her care are being neglected and ignored. That's what political hobbyism is. I care about what's happening in DC and I'll give them my money in forms of my, in terms of my attention and the ads that I'll consume and all the other stuff. But I don't realize that the real thing of politics is actually happening right in my city. Yeah. That the real thing of politics is the, the the homeless community that's around me. It's the children that don't have anything to eat. It's the single moms. It's the refugees. The, the, the people in my neighborhood, the people in my community, that's where the real political action happens. But I can't give it any time because I'm fixated on what's happening somewhere that's quite far across the country. Yeah. That paralyzing sense of what you're saying just, I feel like that's running rampant. I've seen it very, very close to the vest where I've seen that happen. So let me, let's end with this. I want to, I want to know some emotional 
feels with you. I could tell you you think a lot. You, you said you're well-read. You probably feel a lot. What makes you these days smile? Where are you smiling <laughs> these days? <laughs> well, okay, I'll go back. I'll go back to the local thing. The more I am embedded and enmeshed and networked to my local community, to my best friends who I see, you know, every week we get our kids together. I love their kids. I love getting to know them. When I'm with my family, my wife, my kids, the more I'm local, the more I'm here, I think the happier I am, the less attention I'm spreading across to things that are happening nationally, the happier, the the more smiles I end up getting. And so what makes me smile? Well, what makes me smile is Columbia, Missouri. What makes me smile are, are our river bluffs. What makes me smile is my wife and my kids and my dear friends and my church and the people who I spend my life with. That's what makes me smile. So I got to tell you real quick, I forgot to mention this when you mentioned uh, Columbia. So I've gotten to know this woman who works at our local hospital. I'm friends with her, like two higher ups at the hospital. She played softball for Missouri. She's a tiger. We have a great softball team. Yeah. Check it Fun out. Fact. Very cool. So Patrick, what these days is making you cry? What brings sadness to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of things that bring sadness to me just looking at our climate. I mean, obviously, we wrote this book because one of the things that's brought me the most sadness, at least in the last four or five years, is watching people leave the church angry, leave the church loudly, not because anyone in the church hurt them, but because the church didn't say what they wanted them to say. Mm. And that makes me want to cry because I think, gosh, Jesus really is the bread of life. Yeah. He knows what's best for us. He has what's best for us. And it might upset us and it might offend us and it might bother us, but he has what's best. And so it makes me sad to see people walking away from Jesus so that they can follow their political idol, whether it's a donkey or an elephant. Sure. What makes you angry? <laughs> Twitter. Uh <laughs> okay, next question. No, in all seriousness, I, I, you, you can map the seven deadly sins onto basically every social media platform. And of course, one of them is anger. And Twitter is the platform of anger. And if there's any place that makes me angry or causes me more frustration and anxiety than Twitter, I, I don't know what it is, which probably is a good sign I should get off Twitter. Well, I'm grateful because I wouldn't have found you without Twitter. So we got connected initially through Twitter. So I'll, I'll praise God for it for the moment. So <laughs> lastly, Patrick, what makes you laugh? Where do you just bellyache laugh right now? Oh man, uh, where do I bellyache laugh? Obviously, time with friends is is probably the most laughter that I get. I, I love I love comedies. I love comedic TV shows. There's a TV show called Mythic Quest that is absolutely hilarious. I, I will say it's a little bit crude, so I always kind of hesitate to recommend it. Um, but these days, all TV is crude, so I, I feel like that's just unfortunately coming with the territory. But what I love about it is that it, they're very human stories. Like you're laughing at something that is richly and deeply uh, human and humane. Patrick, it's been great. Where where can people find out more about you, about the book, about the crossing, about your uh, podcast? Where can people find out more about you? Yeah, I'm, we're not very creative. So Truth Over Tribe is basically everything. So if you look for the book, Truth Over Tribe, it's at every major bookseller. If you look for the podcast, it's Truth Over Tribe. Uh, you can Google us. If you want to find us on Twitter, it's Truth Over Tribe. It's really easy. Just remember Truth Over Tribe. We would love to interact with you. We'd love to hear your feedback. We, we, we wade into controversial, difficult topics. And that means that our listeners disagree with us as much as they agree with us. But we're all learning and we're all growing and we're all trying to be conformed into the image of Christ together. Wow. Well, thanks, Patrick. This has been great, uh, very life-giving to me. I feel like I've received a lot from this. I feel like if you and I were in the same community, we'd be uh, having a cup of coffee and probably agreeing on more than not. But I, I think I, I would definitely enjoy a, a little bit of life action with you if we were in, in Springfield, Ohio together and Columbia, Missouri together. Thanks so much for having me on the show. 
Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.